Welcome to Composers in a Jukebox, a podcast that brings together a special breed of musicians in a conversation about their craft. Today we're engaging in one in a series of chats with our dear friend Mike Ladisser. Mike has worked in a wide range of projects from indie films such as Cold Brew and Somewhere in Between to Hollywood productions like Black Widow, His Dark Materials and Mission Impossible Fallout. He is also a professor at the Royal College of Music and Cambridge University. Welcome, Mike. Yeah, welcome. Hello. How are you doing, Mike? Glad to be here. All right. Yeah. How- <laughs> what is that? That's going to drop into a question, God. Relax. Jesus. Um, I was just going to say, before these guys started thinking it was the most hilarious thing they've ever heard, um, was that... Mike is actually someone we all know quite well. Yep. Um, Mike was one was my one-to-one teacher at college, so he reviewed quite a bit of my work. Um, he was my one-to-one teacher in college as well. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of us have had Mike as a teacher. Um, it's not just that he's like an external professor that we don't know at all, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And I think um, for me, just personally, I mean, we had a we had a live stream two days ago and I kind of said this, but I'll say it again because it's <laughs> it's quite interesting. Uh, Mike was the first person that I ever knew who wrote film music. Oh, wow. And um, that opened my eyes to a big wide world, uh, <laughs> which <laughs> I'm now fully immersed in. Um, so we're really grateful and um, very honored to have Mike join us today. We've exactly. Been, <laughs> we've been talking about having Mike on our podcast for the longest time. Yep. So this is great. Yeah. So uh, let, let's start with a little bit of, of background about your uh, music department work, because you're not only a composer in your own right, but you've got quite substantial music department credits. Um, so the first question is kind of, it's, it's something that, comes up regularly or, or something that I think a lot of composers starting out are interested in. Do you need to be assisting for other composers who are already established when you like graduate or when, when you're starting out? Is that something you would say is essential? Uh, it's a great question because I think, yeah, a lot of people uh, wonder this or, and, you know, or they, they feel that it's something that they, they kind of need for validation at some point. Um, there is a lot of benefit to assisting someone. Do you need to do it? Absolutely not. I think, you know, if you look at, there's a whole bunch of composers out there who've never assisted someone. Um, I think, you know, like one of my close friends, Kevin Penkin, he's had a great career, uh, has a great career. He's never assisted someone. Um, he just started kind of into certain projects and things. Um, you know, I, I can name a lot more. I think Carly Parody is probably another one, very successful post based in the UK. Um, I don't think she's ever assisted someone. Um, but there's, there's different benefits to doing it. So, you know, I think what an assistant position or working in a music department can do for you is really give you a lot of experience. So you get the opportunity to work on a lot of projects that are far above your level as a composer, uh, not in terms of craft and capability of writing, but in terms of your uh, level in the industry. You know, and, and so if you're fresh out of college, nobody's going to hand you a big Hollywood film. Um, unless it happens to be your best friend who is the director of that film and, you know, somehow that's going through. But uh, most studios even then would really not be okay with that. They would 
you know, they want to know that somebody is very experienced who's sort of behind the helm on that. So, um, so you get a lot of experience assisting someone, um, and you also get the opportunity to see a lot of different roles within that music department. So things like uh, what I had started out doing on, uh, like, say, Mission Impossible was one of my first like really big projects that I got to be part of the music team on. Before that, I'd done some others like the Emoji Movie and some stuff like that. There were also quite big projects to put together musically. Um, and I was mostly printing stems, um, which is just like exporting the individual stems of the tracks to go to mix. And that's a big job. It requires, you know, uh, someone who has an understanding of what they're doing. You can't just hire anybody. Um, but it's also, I'd say definitely an entry level position doesn't require a lot of skill or training. Um, you know, you can do a lot of on the job learning and every person that I worked for, you know, also had a different system. Um, so I started doing a lot of that then, you know, was doing more things like orchestration, arranging, uh, got into writing, you know, which sort of took some steps. It didn't happen immediately, but took building some trust up with the person I was working for. Um, and then, you know, even while doing that, I was doing a mess of things. So, you know, it might be writing on one TV show while orchestrating a film. Um, and, you know, so I think all in all, like if you have the opportunity to assist people when you're starting out, I think it's a great uh, thing to do. I think it's a great opportunity to learn from someone. Um, but also it's not a linear progression towards your career. Um, you know, it can become a linear progression and there's plenty of people who have sort of started their career out of being someone's assistant for a long time and kind of building their network, but that's really on them. You know, that's really, uh, up to them to make that happen and turn it into a career. I think the main thing you get is experience. So you won't, uh, when you're doing these other roles that are not composing. So like when you're orchestrating, when you're doing the, um, let's, you know, arranging printing stems, technical roles, fixing computers, you know, whatever, when you're doing all those things, you are not building up your sort of skill tree of composing, uh, abilities, but, uh, you're learning lots of other things about running a business. However, if you want to continue to compose and to build your craft, you also have to be doing that alongside it. So whether you're assisting someone or not, you need to be doing your own projects. Um, otherwise, you could be somebody's tech assistant for 10 years, and 10 years later, you're no better a composer than you were when you started. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, th I think it's definitely, it informs your own projects as well, if you're like, I can say that too from experience when you see how other people work and like how it's done how they get a lot of stuff done in a short amount of time how to be organized i think that kind of stuff is is pretty much invaluable if you kind of uh get 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 to see that and then kind of use it for your own stuff that you're doing actually jumping into like starting new uh starting the uh going into the music industry um how would you like pitch yourself to composers um like being in part of the um uh, production like you mean to like kind of get a job assisting someone yeah or that, to work alongside someone exactly yeah 
Yeah, I think there are kind of levels and stages uh, within the industry as well. Like, you know, I'd say where I'm at, uh, you know, I've done a bunch of additional writing. Um, I'm quite experienced in that. For me to do more of that work would be kind of like I would be credited and contracted, where a lot of what I'd done previously was not credited or contracted. Uh, paid, obviously, but not, um, you know, maybe they're not able to add me as an additional composer in the credits. And that there could be a lot of reasons why that happens. It's not just down to a personal choice by the composer. Um, it could be in their contract that they have to be the only composer on a project. So it, it could limit that. But um, so just as a kind of preface, you know, I think there are stages where like I would still do additional music, you know, or uh, come on and work for someone else. I mean, even someone like uh, like Gran Turismo, the movie that's uh, came out or coming out soon, um, that was scored by Lauren Balfe, and he had a whole bunch of big games composers come on as additional writers. So he had Joris Mann, he had Jason Graves, he had Austin Wintory, I believe. Um, so all these people who are like, you know, especially in the games world, are seen as sort of the titans of game music, are still asked to come on and do additional music. And it's not in, at that stage, it's not like an assistant role. It's like, I want your artistry on this project. Um, so just as a preface that there are, you know, a lot of levels and stages to doing that. Um, and so you can have, you know, uh, you can come on board for, for different roles at different points. Um, back to your question of like, how do you pitch yourself? I just want to give that overview because like how I would pitch myself now is different than maybe how you would pitch yourself right. uh, to get kind of those initial uh, credits. I think the main thing is getting to know other composers in in a very friendly way and connecting with people who you genuinely connect with. Um, so there's no point in reaching out to a composer, one, whose music you don't like, two, whose personality you don't like, um, it, and kind of looking for a job. But I think if you get to know people, maybe you meet them at different networking events and things like that, you know, you reach out, you try to grab a coffee or, you know, catch up on a video call, talk about your career, ask for advice. At some point, they may ask you to help them out with something. And maybe that starts with a tech role, um, you know, but then they kind of get a chance to get to know you before they even get to know your music. And I think that's really important because then they just know like, all right, this person's reliable. And, uh, you know, I think with those initial projects that you might get asked to do, you'd probably be brought on, like, you know, I think most comp composers would, like, ease you into something and probably yeah. give you a bit of guidance where, uh, you know, that we would hope so. Um, but that it's where, like, okay, I want you to do this cue, and then you could totally screw it up, and they'd be like, okay, maybe that wasn't the one for this, or let me show you why this is wrong. So if you approach it like that, like that it's kind of a mentorship that you're looking for, then look for that as a mentorship that provides a lot of other things too, um, you know, which is someone who can give you kind of advice in your career rather than just, you know, hey, I want to get paid to write your music. You know, it's something that I think then as you build up your credits and maybe later in in a stage, you're sort of like, OK, this is the music that I do. 
this is what I make. And, you know, so if you need me for this project, that obviously I don't, you know, know the intricacies of Gran Turismo, but I imagine it's more on that end. You know, it's probably more about like, oh, these guys are, you know, big games composers. We want to bring games composers into this film about a massive game franchise. You know, I, I think that it's probably a clever marketing stunt as much as it is about bringing in like their artistry and their sort of context to what gamers would appreciate to bring to the score. Um, so I think that's kind of a slightly different conversation, but that's people who have their own studios outright who, you know, are all in successful positions kind of asking to collaborate rather than when you're starting out, I think it's much more about like finding a good mentor. Yeah. Absolutely. And just bouncing off that, Mike, um, could you tell us more about um, the process of putting together show reels? Um, and if you still find show reels, you know, relevant in, in pitching yourself to composers or even directors or other collaborators, what do you include in show reels and what goes on in your mind when you're preparing one? Um, yeah, so it's, you know, I think showreels, it's a kind of a funny thing. I think if you asked me like six months to a year ago, I would have said like, eh, they're kind of irrelevant. I haven't been asked for a showreel in ages, you know, this or that. Uh, but then I was all of a sudden asked for showreels a bunch. Um, and so they are relevant. Um, and I think it really depends on what you're kind of pitching it for or what you're putting yourself forward for. So if you're pitching, you know, like, First of all, I would put a different reel together, whether it was for a game versus film or TV. So I think film and TV are more or less one industry, you know, at least if we're talking about it in this way. From the composer's point of view, it's more or less the same job. You're dealing with a lot of the same people. There's a lot of other craftspeople and above-the-line creatives that move between film and TV. Games is a totally different industry. And so there are some people that kind of straddle the line, but I think composers probably more than anybody are the ones living in both of those worlds. And, you know, I think our job is probably the most similar um, from one industry to another than for anyone else. Like, you know, if you're used to directing live action film and then you're going and you're directing like in-game uh, cinematics, you know, it's quite a different job. So, um so I think that with showreels, um, when you're putting that together, you want to first know what you're trying to uh, achieve with it or who you're sort of pitching it to. Have a good understanding of that. Like, if it's for a horror project, then make your whole reel horror. There's no reason to show, like, you know, kind of wacky animation, you know, uh, kid stuff if that's the goal. Um, but then if you... It's also good to have sort of general showreels that like, you know, if somebody is just like, oh, let me see some of your stuff. And that I would put together your best stuff. And I think that credits are fairly relevant for that. So uh, this past year, I put together an updated showreel and I chose three projects that I thought were the most uh, meaningful and relevant. So obviously I can't include anything that I did additional music for on like, you know, his dark materials or anything like that. Uh, Cause this is my showreel. It's the project that's only associated with me. So I put a film that I did um, and th this film somewhere in between. And we had our premiere for that at uh, Tribeca this past year. 
So that's quite a significant credit to it. Uh, so I put that front and center. I think it's also one of the best looking shorts I've ever worked on. And they had budget to record a whole orchestra. So it's like, you know, one of the, the best projects that I've kind of got outright. So I put that up front and center, put the biggest climactic thing, you know, the most impressive part of it. And, you know, about, I don't know, 30 to 45 seconds is kind of all you need. But the visuals look great. So, you know, I'm also thinking like I'm showing this to directors. Directors want to see projects that also look good. You know, so I think it's kind of relevant to look at director show reels, see how they put their reels together. And you can kind of use that as a bit of a model. Because then if you make like a really impressive show reel that looks, you know, what you think would be impressive to them when they're looking at making their own, then I think that's going to be quite significant. Um, then I put a couple other projects in there that I had a video game, um, VR game that I'd scored and that had its premiere at Venice Film Fest as part of their immersive program. Um, and is, you know, since been premiered in North America at South by Southwest, um, and is going into development with a major company. So I put that relevant information. Um, and then I had another film that I'd done that's had quite a good run, uh, in the festival circuit and has had, it's quite a different approach to the score. Um, it's more of a jazz score. So I put that one kind of at the end as well to sort of round it out a little bit. So my thought process in putting this together is like, what's the best thing that I'm going to put up front? What's also something I'm really proud of that's very significant and has had, you know, some good accolades. And then, uh, you know, here's something else that is, you know, I'm also very proud of and kind of shows some diversity. Um, so I think it's really good to put things that have relevant credits and accolades and showcase all that, because I think that provides as much credibility as the music itself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've got a pretty good uh, segue here because the film we want to talk to you about is Cold Brew. And I want to ask you a little bit about how writing a jazz score went. You were actually working on it a bit, I believe, when I was your student. So I heard a little bit of kind of the process. Talk about scoring for jazz musicians, how much experience you had, the process of maybe using improvisation. Just kind of give a general overview of working on that score. Yeah, sure thing. Yeah, I remember. I think I showed you bits and pieces of it kind of while it was in progress. Um, Cold Brew was a, it was a fun one. It was great. And I had the opportunity to uh, record like jazz trio for it, um, something. So I had a drummer, bass player, and a sax player. Um, and then there's also a bit of piano in the score that uh, another friend of mine who has a degree in jazz piano um, recorded. So the whole process of that, like I am admittedly not a jazzer. I, you know, wouldn't claim to know very much about jazz harmony or, you know, like voicings, things like that. Um, at least not before this score. So I think every score, you know, has fun challenges. That's part of the job. That's part of the excitement. Um, so with creating this, like I needed to create a lot of different sort of moods and the whole score is almost like one big music video. Uh, music is wall to wall. It's throughout. There's a live jazz trio on stage in the background throughout the whole film. And, you know, so they're kind of playing the soundtrack live. 
So I knew I was going to write for that ensemble because um, that's what we're seeing. And it's the score needed to be kind of diegetic and non-diegetic music. So it's something that characters are aware of at some points and other times they're not. Um, so I thought, you know, first let me come up with a few different kind of styles and literally just started like YouTube jazz drum patterns, you know, like <laughs> typical jazz drum patterns. Uh, because a lot of this is going to come from the rhythm section. So then I just like copied them into MIDI, you know, whatever, like a basic, uh, Samba is, you know, what a basic swing is, you know, and, and kind of put that stuff together. And then, uh, from that, I'm formerly a bassist. Uh, I never really played jazz as a bass player. Um, but you know, I, I understand bass and I understand how it works with, with the drum kit and stuff. So I then wrote some bass lines to go along with the, all these different drum patterns. And then over the top of that, I put some chords. I kind of came up with like a head. So I created sort of like, you know, just a simple jazz tune around a bunch of these patterns. So I had like, you know, a basic sort of samba and a basic, you know, dirge, whatever. So then I took that and I felt like this is, you know, it sounds like crappy jazz, uh, but, you know, I'm not really too happy with it. And I'd be a little bit embarrassed to show this to uh, the performers. So I reached out to my friend Vincenzo, who's an amazing jazz pianist, and I gave him the uh, what I had, you know, so far and asked him, you know, could you like just play some chords over the top of this as you would, you know, kind of based off of essentially the lead sheet. Um, so he played that in, sent it back in MIDI. So now I also had a way to kind of look through the way he would approach it. Um, so then I took what he made and I sort of played with that, moved it around a lot, chopped it up and then put together something that is like now I feel like from studying what he had made, I made something that was a lot more convincing, at least as like a, a base, you know, to work off of. So I put that into notation. Um, and I also knew going into the sessions with the drummer, the bass player and the sax player, I didn't want to just, you know, give them chord changes. I thought that would be really like uh, rude. You know, <laughs> I wanted to show that I put some effort in and I'm not asking them to just make my score. Um, so I wrote everything down and thought, like, if we record what's on the page, I'll be happy with that. Uh, but I'd like them to improvise. And I spoke about this with the contractor ahead of time, because with something like this, I wouldn't want to get into a scenario where someone felt like they were hired to just read something down. Then they came up with a whole bunch of new material and don't get credited for it, you know, for kind of co-composing this score. Um and so we, I knew I wanted to ask them to improvise some stuff over it. And they were all really good players and really comfortable with that. Um, and so the contractor agreed kind of between all of us, why don't we pay them a slightly higher uh, fee for, for the time, knowing that they're going to improvise on some stuff. And then they feel, you know, comfortable that we've sort of bought that out, you know, that that performance is now, you know, they're, they're happy to really kind of give it their all. So I think that's the best way to approach it, you know, is then make sure everybody's in the know and comfortable from the start. Um, and so then in the studio, I had them read down what I put into notation. 
and then I had them, uh, it was essentially like 16 bar phrases. So I'd have them play through that and then do 16 bars improvised and then repeat that. And then, you know, we would do takes off of that. And so I had essentially as different cues, different pieces, different tempos, that sort of stuff. was a really fun conversation because there'd be things like I had this one piece that was a dirge and so I said you know I think the feeling for this is really kind of like bars closing up last orders are over like this is you know the, it's a bit of like a smoky emptying bar last chance for the night that's what we kind of want for this scene and so then the drummer was like oh well now that you've mentioned that I'm going to take you know the snares off the snare drum i'm going to use mallets uh and the sax player was like cool i'm going to use a totally different mouthpiece for this and get like a very different timbre out of the whole thing and so then like they got into the mood and came up with something i never would have thought of you know i i don't know drum kits well enough to have thought of that and it was something that like the mallets on the snare without the snares on was this really like you know, it felt like it was, uh, you'd cut the whole high end out of the snare and you'd then like put it through some big, uh, room reverb or something, you know, like a big plate <laughs> reverb. It was this really cool sound that was happening acoustically. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that that was definitely a learning project. Um, and in the end I took mostly the improvised side of what they'd done. So it was all, you know, based off my melodies and things that they'd been given. Um, but I used all of that stuff and sort of chopped it up. So for me, that was a process of like, I don't really know how to approach this. I'll do some research to start and then let me get some people in who really know what they're doing with this to kind of give their artistry to it. And in the end, I think it sounds like jazz, you know, so it's <laughs> thing very job, much does. It is very yeah. yeah. It is. Did really they good. watch the, uh, did they watch the film while they were recording? Like, was there a monitor that they could see? Or was it just entirely descriptive? Yeah, it was all descriptive. I didn't, um, I I don't really ever show the film to the musicians. Um, I think that, at least for me, it's not necessary. Um, you know, I think if I can't really describe the mood, like, on the page, or just by explaining to them, like, what I'm going for, then I might not have the greatest grasp over what I'm trying to achieve. So at least personally, I, I feel that way that like, if I'm, you know, I don't need to speak to the musicians in like the language of narrative. 
I need to speak to them in the language of music. And it's my job to be the translator between the music of language and the music of narrative, where like when I'm speaking to the director, we're talking in narrative. And when I'm speaking with the music team, we're talking in musical terms. So I think that's my role. I have to be that translator between it. So uh, I think sometimes it can just be a big waste of time, you know, to show the, uh, the film to the musicians. And, you know, I, I think I see it all the time, uh, not calling any of you out, of course, but uh, with <laughs> students at the college. Uh-oh. That sometimes, you know, whenever people get in and they do their first recording sessions, you know, they it's like, what have you done up to that point? You've probably seen like hours of footage of John Williams conducting like Star Wars and Abbey Road, you know. And so you see like this absolute master maestro who is sitting there being like, you know, what's going on here in this scene and stuff. And like to him, that is relevant. You know, he really knows what he's doing by like showing something, some, you know, a part of a scene at the right moment to get the right effect he's going for. But I see a bunch of people when they're recording for the first time, they're like, you know, I mean, it, it sounds to the musicians a lot like if I asked my mother to explain the plot of a film, you know, it's just like, <laughs> well, there's like, you know, you've got this guy and this woman and so like you know they meet and then you know she falls in love and it's like the people sitting in the chair are like what the hell are you talking about <laughs> you know so so i think it's you know often i don't really have to explain you know just explain it on the page try to explain it musically yeah one one of you here in this room is guilty of it it seems <laughs> one or more Oh, oh. One or more, oh, oh yeah. Well, Honestly, well, we wanted to ask you about like uh, any. Ex- how was your experience teaching students? But now, now we kind of got one of the experiences. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's my job as an educator. You know, I love teaching. I really, you know, it's so it makes me so happy to see what you guys are doing. And you know, I've seen now a whole bunch of alumni kind of go out into the world and start their careers. It's really wonderful. I really enjoy it. Um, but you know that's part of the process. It's also like it makes me really happy to help someone to understand those things rather than you know it's like would you rather be embarrassed by me telling you that after like one small very insignificant recording experience or learn that way yourself after being embarrassed like you know from putting it together and having the musicians and like have wasting your own time and listening back to what was going on you know like I, I'd rather help give you that lesson before yeah. Yeah. yep 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 <laughs> absolutely that's what school's for and i can definitely say like w- one of the things that a lot of students i'd like encourage any students to do or something that i realized that i needed to do more as i progressed through my undergrad and through colleges to just take risks and try things because like y- you want to fail sometimes if you if you do everything incredibly by the book and just don't attempt to experiment you're not going to learn all these things but then like you said the value of that is when you get into the real world then you can know not to make those mistakes not to show musicians you know six minutes of picture or whatever you know or trying to recap a film yeah Yeah, like you know there are there are times when i've seen this like on on mission impossible at one time we did this and it might have felt like you know, in a moment like this was a risk, this could be an incredible waste of time, Mm -hmm. but it was the right thing to do. So what we were trying to achieve is there was something that 
it was using kind of like an evolution patch, you know, something like that, that was sort of like a string ensemble kind of effect that was the sort of types of like harmonics that would kind of come in and out and stuff like that. And the way that it was written in MIDI is it would have these chords, but then lots of breaks in the notes. So they were always re-triggering. So it's this kind of effect, you know, that was not just like holding a note down and playing back whatever the musicians did for the sample library. It was like using the sample library in a creative way that created this new sound and this new texture. And so that's a challenge to try to describe it on the page when you're orchestrating it. And so we did the best that we could. Um, and then we, you know, found a, it's like we're now going back and forth explaining it with the musicians. And so we took time where we've got like 80 string players sitting in air, you know, and it's like you're just thinking you're burning money every minute. And we had all of the principal players. Uh, it was all strings. So all the principal players come in to the studio, listen back to what the demo was and show kind of what was happening in the picture to explain like this is kind of the mood and effect that we're going for. So it became a collaboration between the composer and all of the musicians. And so now it's like, okay, I think if we try to do this and they're kind of talking, like all the principal players are talking amongst themselves about like, what if we do this? Maybe it's a bit of soltasto. Maybe we do this with the bow or if everybody staggers and does this. So they needed to have that conversation. And it took, you know, probably 15, 20 minutes of the session, which is like, you think that is a really scary amount of time to not be recording any music. Exactly. Um, and then we put them back in the studio. They played through it. And it was like, okay, now we found the texture that's going to be used throughout the score. So now every time we see that, we know what we're playing. We know how to play it. So that was a good use of time. And there's, you know, there are instances for that for sure. But uh, I think in general, like it should probably just be laid out on the score. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No, all of those insights are really like why having you as a teacher, I thought was valuable. Somebody who really has that, not just like experience in film scoring, but contemporary experience in film scoring. Um, one of the things just to talk about, like a little bit getting into sort of your course and things that you offer is that there's a lot of wonderful film scoring instructors that are, you know, from kind of a past era. And that's not to say they don't have things to offer, but they only have a certain set of things to offer. And the majority of educators in film music are from that kind of older guard. I think what's great about the education I received from you and a lot of the things in your course, I presume as well, is that it's contemporary things. It's things about sessions that were in air, you know, five, six years ago and not, you know, in Abbey Road 40 years ago or something like that. So all of that is is valuable in that sense. Well, yeah, I'm glad that, you know, I can keep it relevant. And I, I think it's something that, you know, also makes me passionate about teaching is that I am working. And so are, are all my colleagues at World College of Music. You know, everybody is part time teaching and they all have a, a career. You know, so as we keep doing work, you know, in, in our field, we sort of bring that in and the course is always evolving. And I try to do the same with my online course, you know, and keep that relevant, keep that up to date. Yeah. Speaking speaking of education, uh, something for our listeners is that Composers and Jukebox are now made affiliates of an online course 
uh, that Mike has set up. It's been going on for a while now, um, and it's a really comprehensive course that lays out the entire process of film scoring from start to the end, writing themes, working with MIDI, um, optimizing home recordings, exporting stems and stuff like that. So it's it's really good for anyone who's um, intending to hone their craft in scoring for films. And the great thing, one of the great things about being affiliates is that um, we get to provide codes and links to discounts. And so... <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> So if you're out there listening to us and would like to learn more about film scoring from Mike, um, check out our Instagram. Uh, we've got a link in our bio that will bring you to uh, a little code of which you can get a 40% discount on Mike's course. By the way, it's the first link. So if you click on it, you'll see immediately Mike Lewis's Film Music Academy. Yeah, That's there's it. no way you can miss you, it. You can't miss it. You can't miss it. Yeah, we, Come on. we just got too many links, but hey, <laughs> this is on the top. Uh, right, Jelena, I believe you've got uh, spontaneous. Oh, I I've, I've, I've got one. Yeah, I mean, we we <laughs> progressed quite far from our conversation about cold brew already, <laughs> which is great because it's all very relevant. Yep. Um, but there's one thing that just occurred to me that uh, I think would be interesting to talk about is for that kind of thing. What did the director have um, sort of? Um, what did what did they go off um, to sign off the score? I imagine they must have had something before the session happened. Um, but with that kind of improvisational element, it's probably pretty difficult to provide something. So how did you handle that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I got myself very lucky of how trusting they were uh, through the whole process. Um, I met the director and producer uh, through a recommendation from a good friend of mine. Um, and so it's actually Jeff at Majin, who is the conductor oh, of my nice. album. Oh. Um, and so it was friends of his. And so he, he recommended me for it. Um, and so that was great because, you know, it's like, I mean, Jeff is one of the loveliest people on the planet and everybody loves him. And so it's like recommendation from Jeff is like, okay, then you're a friend of mine. So, um, <laughs> we always, we had a great rapport from the beginning, you know, it's just a mutual respect. And I brought it up, you know, from the start, I was like, this is kind of what my plan is. I'd like to record the musicians for this. So I'd, you know, we need this for the budget. I would like to put this all together, but also this is kind of how the process is going to work. So I'm going to start with this. I'm going to kind of give you some demos. This is sort of the plan. We can check in on this, but we're really not going to have what we're, we're not going to know exactly what we're going to get until we record. Um, so, you know, kind of, are you okay with this? So I sort of got the process of that signed off from the start. Um, and, you know, I think if I was to recommend anything in that kind of situation is just be very clear with your collaborators, what you plan on doing, get them on board. Um, because then, you know, they, I followed in with all my check-ins, told them when I booked the session, the studio, all that stuff. So they kind of knew what to expect when, and I think that was really helpful, um, you know, and I think that would be the same kind of, I mean, this, this was for a short project, but, you know, it would be the same kind of all the way up. You just help to explain to your collaborator what your plan process is going to be and keep them in the loop. And more often than not, it's, you know, I think that that's just an advantage. You know, I think that they really like being included in that process mm. and to feel that they're kind of a part of it. You know, so so I think that's 
helpful. All right. So um, jumping from Cold Brew to your recent film score, somewhere in between, uh, I remember you were streaming the recording on your Discord, I believe. I forgot it was. Yeah, it was through my Twitch channel. channel. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember now. Yeah, yeah from Twitch. Um, just, just to uh, double check with you. You, you were in person during the recording, right? It was just streamed to us for for um, for the viewers. Yeah, recorded with Fames in Macedonia, which I can only recommend. They're just a fantastic group of people. Uh, owners are like just lovely, lovely people, and the musicians are really good. Um, and it was the first time I was working with them, so I flew to Macedonia. I wanted to be in the studio to work with them because it was just the whole thing was very. Uh, pressured in a way like there was just no room for error so I knew that I wanted to be in the studio I could record a lot more and a lot faster if I was there pushing rather than kind of doing it with a bit of a lag you know yeah. over, over the internet I did recall like I, I did recall they, they were very 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 good players and you, you also halfway through you kind of need to push them a bit because they were practicing no not saying it's bad it's just that time limit that's, that's yeah, I was just getting used to the style. Like, I think, you know, I mean, Fames does like over 400 sessions a year, you know, like they have a lot more experience recording than I do, but uh, their way that they usually do things, uh, at least in that, the conductor liked to kind of do sort of like a half speed run through where we weren't recording so that everybody could just play through the notes. And if he did that a couple of times, then, you know, it really helps yeah. and it really helps them do it. But I just felt we didn't need to do that for everyone. And so I, I just, you know, spoke to the conduct, the conductor Oleg and, you know, lovely guy. He totally was like, okay, you know, it's, it's your, your ship to drive. So, you know, uh, we'll do what you want to do on it. And, uh, but there was mutual respect between us too, you know, that like he knew, I, I knew what I was doing and that I could handle it. I wasn't going to like screw up his system and then cause a train wreck. Got it. Definitely one of the things I remember, like, no, it doesn't even like necessarily sound exactly like this, but I got shots of just Back to the Future, the end titles when I heard things from that, which is a compliment, obviously, that's an amazing score. But I want to know how you kind of uh, structured the recordings, um, developed how you were going to just practically get that done well and efficiently given that it's a higher degree of difficulty than a lot of scores. Yeah, I mean, uh, I take that compliment because the whole film is like a love letter to Back to the Future uh, in itself too, just like what the story is about and all that. So um, yeah, I mean, this was part of the challenge, but this is where my experience with running recording sessions for big Hollywood films and you know, sort of managing all of that from orchestrating the stuff to also being the booth reader and kind of being the session producer for a lot of these. Um, I've just got, you know, hundreds of hours of studio time doing it. So I kind of knew, like I knew it was all capable and I knew what I was also getting myself into. Um, I also had uh, Jeff at Majin uh, was kind enough to look at my scores before I went in. Um, you know, I was really happy to get his feedback and his advice. He has far more studio experience than I do. So he gave me some tips and I made some changes for some things just to make that whole thing a bit more efficient. Um, but then, yeah, when I got in, I mean, I always start my sessions with, I have a whole uh, like order of priority 
And this is actually in the, the online course is that, you know, I kind of talk you through this, like how you plan your recording session. Um, and part of this is thinking of, you know, how you need to ride the energy of, of the musicians through the session. And I think it's always best to get the biggest, hardest stuff out of the way because it's going to take the most time anyway. And the start of a recording session is going to be slower than the end of it. It's going to take a while for the musicians to kind of work their way into it. So you might as well spend that time working on the harder stuff than on the easy stuff. Um, so that's always kind of my approach is I'll structure the recording session where I put the biggest, baddest thing up front. And then the second biggest, baddest thing I think about, and I usually end up putting that one actually first. So it's kind of like, let's do the big, bad stuff, but like the easier one as the very first cue, because that first cue is also for the recording engineer to like get levels and make sure that everything's coming through clearly. So it's kind of like, let's do that because that will end up being pretty quick. And then everybody feels good because they kind of like knocked a big one out of the park already. And then you go in, it's kind of like, okay, now, now the work starts. So I do sort of like the second hardest first, then the hardest, and then I pretty much just go in order of what's most difficult or most complicated. Uh, in the course, I talk about this a lot more specifically, but I have like a hierarchy of complicated to record, difficult to record. This has to do with like both the music as well as like, do I have to start and stop a whole bunch of parts or are there a lot of overdubs? is a kind of complicated overdubs that I have to get, you know, those things are just going to take more time. So even if the music is really easy, if I have to start and stop five different times to record that cue, the whole thing could end up taking twice as long than just recording like <laughs> a slow strings cue from start to finish. You know, those, those tend to go a lot quicker. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that piece of advice about recording kind of the, the nastiest bit, like second-ish, is something I definitely kind of live by in recording sessions. And yeah, it was a piece of advice that really has served me well in a lot of ways. I'd love to ask a question about uh, different projects again. This is Between Worlds. It's uh, your, the album that you've released uh, a couple of years ago. And it's, I mean, quite honestly, quite a big thing because you did it, as I understand, shortly after graduating from RCM. And that's kind of <laughs> sort of where we are now. We're looking at it. Um, and... You know, we look at it with, with a lot of admiration. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> one question considering how uh, the music on Between Worlds are mostly, as I understand, standalone pieces. Not all of them, uh, if not none, are written to picture. 
Um, and so in making this album, how did you structure the album and how did you figure out the order of tracks? Uh, well, one, thank you. I'm glad that you admire the work. Uh, the world <laughs> is a very personal project and, you know, it's an album that I'm, I'm very proud of. Um, even, you know, as time goes on, you look back on previous works and you know, there's things that you'd want to change, but I'm, I'm really happy with how that is. It's like a snapshot of where I was at the time. Um, so between worlds, like I, none of it is written to picture. It's, it's just an artist album, you know, it's totally free. Um, not, and initially, you know, I, I knew I wanted to do kind of, uh, like a concept album and I wanted to do something that was going to have a sort of through narrative and structure. Um, so I kind of came up with like a loose narrative in my head, you know, that really was only for me. Um, you know, it was just something that I could put together that would be, um, you know, something that I could kind of have like, okay, this is that point in the story, just some sort of structure to it. And from that structure, I had kind of like story beats, you know, and that allowed me, I was thinking of it as if it was kind of like, you know, uh, a short book or a movie or something. And so I was kind of thinking about like, all right, now I'm, I'm essentially writing the suite to this portion of the, the story. Um, and so the structure for the whole album and sort of the track list was there before the tracks existed. Cause then I kind of knew like where everything was going to fall into place. Um, and then I just wrote the track. So I, you know, might work on the first track one day, the eighth track, the next, and I would sort of go back and forth. Um, and this whole project for me was also a bit of an exploration, um, into writing a bit more, exploring a lot more with like electronic music and kind of writing hybrid music, combining it with orchestra. So I intentionally started half the tracks purely from writing electronic tracks and sort of producing them and then adding the orchestra to it and the other half vice versa. So starting with sort of an orchestral track and then trying to kind of go back and forth between them and like blur the line of that process or that approach. Um, so that's kind of where, you know, the whole title comes from is that I feel it sort of has a bit of like a space narrative overview to it, you know, but uh, just in its sort of sound world. But then I thought between these two worlds of kind of electronic music and writing for orchestra, um, and it was also, you know, just parts of that narrative are then they became very sort of personal in like, okay, it has this to do with this story, but then it might be talking about, you know, a moment of loss. And so then that track really represents like maybe a particular loss in my life. And so there's, you know, each track then sort of took on its own life that now, you know, I don't really think that it has much to do with that original narrative, but that was the catalyst that kind of helped get it started. So now I think of it more like each of those tracks just represents something very significant for me. All right. All right. Yeah. The last question, uh, fittingly about the last track also on your uh, <laughs> album Between Worlds, um, which is called Greetings. And that one um, has some field recordings in it um, in uh, different languages. So 
could you share a little bit about how you source those and what the what the general what the story is behind this well yeah so i mentioned there's a bit of a space theme throughout between worlds and um i got really into i mean this was kind of you know a culmination of a, a part of an idea of a project that i had for a lot of years which is that i wanted to use a lot of uh like there's a whole bunch of nasa archives that are public because it is a public government company so it is a you know it's all free to use because we've already paid for it with our tax money <laughs> so the nasa archives and they have you know a, a page that says the rights and essentially you're, you're free to use anything that they have which are both images and audio as long as you're not uh like using it in a kind of profitable way. Like I, I double checked, I checked with a lawyer, the way I'm using it for the music is totally fine. Um, so I wanted to clear that, but those, all the recordings of the greetings are um, from the Voyager missions. So mm -hmm. these are two satellites, Voyager one and two, that we sent out into the universe, never to return to earth. And so they're essentially these probes and On those probes, they have a whole bunch of equipment that was used to monitor planets in our solar system as they flew by them. And they were always meant to be like slingshotted out of the solar system and to just go explore the deep cosmos. So with this kind of concept, they decided they wanted to put a record of humanity on this. So they made a golden record that they put on the uh, probe itself and it has a little record player so that if any other alien life forms discovered any of these probes they would have a little greeting card from earth Ooh. and so on that record it contains music from bach from chuck berry it contains you know a whole <laughs> bunch of world music it contains a lot of sounds of just like this is the sound of rain coming down on planet earth this is the sound of like a baby crying in its mother's arms. You know, it's just a whole bunch of source sounds that the idea of like this represents humanity. And part of that, Carl Sagan was uh, a professor at Cornell University um, in upstate New York. And he was the director of this, uh, this part of the project. And so he wanted to record a whole bunch of greetings, people just saying hello, you know, like hello from planet Earth. And so he got as many people together as he could on the Cornell campus who could speak different languages and give these greetings in different languages. So some of them are like Latin or Aramaic, you know, things like that, that uh, are, you know, maybe like Latin is a dead language, you know, so there's things like that that are still there. But then you also have, you know, French, English, Cantonese. So. There's 55 readings in total. And I just found this whole thing fascinating of like this uh, reading card going out into the, the universe for someone to discover. Oignis proteste hairete, Irenikos prosphilus elelithamen philoi. Poloranon, bordo kutnevin, yeveki mikamazuchunneren anti, 
It's such a dope concept though. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating trivia. That's like, that, that, that adds in another dimension to the track for sure. <laughs> but your track should be on it, Mike. <laughs> yeah. I, I was about, I don't know, you know, 40 years too late on that. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> this was set out. you were born. <laughs> can, they, can they not do a Wii transfer to that program? <laughs> there is, uh, I mean, the Voyager missions are just fascinating. If, you can't tell, I'm a huge space nerd. But it's um, something that they had, like, if you listen to Carl Sagan's Pal Blue Dot speech, it also comes from this probe, which is like as the Voyager was just crossing the threshold and leaving the solar system, uh, they he had them turn the camera around and face Earth for one last time and take a photo. So it's Ooh. this tiny photo of Earth just as this pale blue dot. And it's just hanging, you know, or as he so poetically says, it's suspended in a sunbeam. Um, and so it has this really beautiful speech about the whole thing, just saying like, that's us, that's everything, that's all humanity as we've ever known exists on this tiny little dot. So it's really cool. Yeah, it is very cool. So poetic. Great note to end off on. <laughs> I'm stealing. <laughs> um, everyone, Mike Ladison. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here, Mike. Hey. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for having me. Um, you know, it's uh, really great. As I said, great to see what you guys are doing with the podcast. And you know, oh, I'm happy thanks, uh, we can also collaborate with the course. Um, and yeah, I, you know, really support what you guys are doing. Go buy the course through their link and support them too. It'd be great. Oh, thank you, guys. Also, also for the listeners who are interested in the music we've talked about today, that's all out for streaming. So uh, just go out there and give that a listen. Yeah. Thank you guys very much. Looking forward to catching uh, up again good, soon. Good. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Cheers, all right. Mike. Cheers. Bye for now. See you. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Composers in a Jukebox. We've got loads more interesting episodes cooking in the edit, which we can't wait to share with you. Subscribe to our pages on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts to be notified of future episodes.